Frank Hamiletic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brank Amalytic and today we have with us Jane Harrison. Jane Harrison is founding director of JDH Architects and has been at the helm since its inception in 2003. Through her leadership and pioneering vision, JDH has delivered an extensive portfolio of education and community projects and a hard-earned reputation as one of Australia's most creative and dynamic architecture firms. Jane is a leading voice advocating resilient and responsible architecture and building methodologies, believing in a better way to practice her profession where people and the environment are the cornerstones of good design. She looks towards long-lasting solutions that support a responsible and resilient, thriving future. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Jane Harrison. Thank you, Branko. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for such a warm and welcoming introduction. No problem. So let's talk about JDH. Um, by the way, is that named after you, just out of interest? Yes, it is. I quite often get asked what the D is for, but I um, it's a secret. Okay, so... I'd have to kill you. Well, there you <laughs> my first question. Okay, so in terms of JDH, you have a particular focus. Um, you know, it says on your... On your website, JDH Architects focus our thinking on the most excellent design. We seek out originality and real engagement with people and communities. Okay, so what does that look like in real life in terms of examples? Well, I suppose um, in order to answer that question, Branko, I really need to share a little bit of the JDH story. So I arrived uh, in Australia where I established JDH in 2003. So I was basically fresh off the boat. Um, And like probably most of the architects listening to this podcast, you know, um, you're only ever as good as your last job. And without any uh, real work to show, I mean, the work that I'd been um, doing before that, prior to that, was literally billion-dollar projects, infrastructure projects um, in Hong Kong and London. Um, So, you know, I had to find a way, I had to innovate and find a way to actually uh, break into the market and to, um, you know, really get clients to trust and engage with us. So I was lucky enough, I accidentally um, started to design early learning centres. And in the building education revolution, I asked my uh, daughter's principal, um, you know, if there was any any work going at the school, I knew they were going to do some architecture and she kindly induced me uh, to Catholic uh, education. So, you know, but when we would go to the schools, obviously um, education and the way educational design has um, moved forward, particularly in in Australia, we're one of the world leaders in education design. Um, You know, learning environments are very different to what you and I experienced. They're actually very different to what um, even my team who are, you know, kind of can be uh, 25 to, to 35 have experienced. So right from day one, we, we, you know, we asked the people that we work with, you know, um, can you help us? And teachers are great. You know, educators are great. They love to help you. Um, so we really developed this, uh, you know, it's kind of part of my natural personality to be extremely inquisitive and curious. Um, but we developed different ways of working with teachers and engaging with schools. And we were always, I'm, you know, I'm not that person who has a standard slide deck, you know, so we're always innovating on how we could do that. And, you know, we realized that a lot of people, and I, I think it's true, um, you know, in, in any kind of uh, non-for-profit or government um, projects, um, a lot of end users feel like they, you know, perhaps having something to do done to them and not for them. 
Um, so for us, really developing the ideas and the, you know, the ideas around human-centered design, it's really very much part of the process um, that we do. So for us, we will always say to a school, we'll give you the project back as an education tool, you know, and whether that's working with, you know, your, your nine students to build messy maps of the school um, or actually working with teachers, um, you know, very physically and hands-off on uh, making collages of new learning environments, um, you know, we'll just engage with them um, really to move away from the traditional architectural approach. You know, I, I've done it myself. I do it myself. You know, as an architect, you will often jump into the solution within 20 minutes of first meeting, you know, the client. And, you know, I just think that that is quite a restrictive um, approach. I'm a really big fan of design thinking. I've spent some time at, at Stanford's D School and the whole idea of forgetting what you already know and starting with a blank piece of paper, um, you know, is really exciting for us. So, what does that look like? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's just a lot of fun. We really do get to, um, you know, build deep and meaningful relationships with the people um, that we're working for. Um, and we just, you know, it just kind of does um, really feed my curiosity. And uh, we were able to gain insights that I don't think um, a traditional kind of methodology would actually uncover. I'll get on to that educational design later because there's a few more questions I'll ask that. But I'm going to now do something that should make you afraid, Jane. I'm going to quote you. Okay. Um, <laughs> there you go. So you should never write anything on the internet. Anyway, you did once write, though, that one of the most renowned female architects of the modern era, Marion Marnie Griffin, reportedly spent her entire life making her husband, Walter Burley Griffin, the guy who designed Canberra, look good. The, the women of today prefer to be recognised and respected in their profession. But it isn't always that simple, is it? So why isn't it? It always that simple and um, what needs to be done to change the situation? Look, I think that the architecture profession, uh, certainly in New South Wales, um, is not well supported. Um, I think that really in that quote, what I was actually talking about is really there, are, you know, since the sad demise of Zaya Hadid, there are really no female uh, star architects. And that doesn't just go, you know, really for architecture. Women generally, and, and you know, I, I was working with a uh, female coach who was helping me with my LinkedIn, and she gave me so much information and data on how, what percentage of women will actually ask for a pay rise, or what percentage of women will actually put themselves forward for an award. And it's, it, you know, it's an extremely low. We don't do it. You know, we don't actually put ourselves um, out there or, or, or um, feel comfortable in doing that. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, architects generally must do. I think we must claim back um, the fact that we are one of, uh, you know, the oldest and um, most skilled professions, but also particularly for, you know, women in architecture to support them and encourage them to actually put themselves forward, not just for architectural, um, you know, awards. Winning architectural awards is a nightmare unless you've already won one. Um, you know, it can take all your time and, you know, effort, et cetera. But, you know, looking at those other things and just even promoting, you know, other architects, I, I actually uh, spent six months on LinkedIn liking, you know, other architects' um, posts every day. And there's so few other architects who would like my posts. You know, just as a profession, we need to be more supportive and we need to actually, um, you know, promote what we do um, and our skills and integrity. Um, and particularly, I think that does extend to other female architects. Interesting you say supportive. I mean, I, I, I always, I always, well, I've read that that is one of the strong points of women, as opposed to men. I mean, we're not supportive. We just, like, drink beer and stuff. But 
women tend to be a lot more supportive. So I, you're saying that they're in, in, in a work scenario, then they're not supportive? Look, I think from my particular um, experience, I, um, or apart from the fact that I, I would never be a, a member of a club that would actually have me, as Groucho Marx once said. I, you know, I never had the time when I was, uh, when I had my business, started my business to actually go to events in the Institute, you know, I just didn't have the time. I work 70 hours a week and I've got two kids. So, you know, you know, you don't even have time to get your legs waxed and mind to go and talk to other architects. But I think, you know, as a, as a group, I think, but I did actually a couple of years ago, I was actually mentoring one of my female staff members and, she, and it turned out uh, that she actually was coaching me. It was completely the other way around. She said, Jane, you need to be a part of the system. So I volunteered, never do that. My granddad told me never volunteer. Uh, um, but I volunteered and I uh, was working with the Institute on their CPD committee. And, you know, it is just a shambles, like the whole, you know, kind of um, support network in Australia, in, in New South Wales for architects is just, it's not there. You know, it's so difficult for us to be able to engage with each other. You know, I was spending my time doing presentations at the Institute and yet they didn't have the resources or money to um, to post on Instagram or LinkedIn about it you know it's just uh, it's there is not the backbone that was there um, previously and not the backbone that you see in the RIBA or other institutes of architects across the world to actually kind of support architects and, and give them opportunities to come together you know that we should be on the forefront of how we collaborate um, and you know yet yeah, we seem to all, I think it's not just architects, but just generally, we all seem to want to leave it to somebody else. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's pointing to the fact that we need to come together as a profession, I think. Okay, on, on, the, on, that, on that point, um, let's go a bit further. So data shows that one in every five women working in construction have experienced gender, or they construct a built environment, I should say, um, have experienced gender discrimination on the job. And one in four women in the industry say their sex is preventing them from moving up the career ladder. The construction industry is not the only set that's failing, I would say. According to um, Dr. Uh, Jill Matthewson of Monash University's Art Design and Architecture Faculty, women primarily remain in the junior ranks of the profession despite having comprised nearly half all architecture graduates. Um, in fact, I'll tell you, there's actually more than half now. In fact, someone, uh, a lecturer um, who I know quite well in architecture, said it's about 60%. So um, there is change in there, but can you describe what is this change? And, and is, it, is it moving, you think, fast enough? Look, I, I agree with you. I think there is change. Um, and uh, But it's, it's really not happening quickly enough. And it's perhaps not happening, um, you know, hard enough in the right direction. Um, you know, I mean, there, uh, there are many Australians who have outdated and harmful views on gender equality, many people across the world. And it is a, it is a problem that needs to be addressed at the highest levels. You know, um, workplaces, just like governments, are actually led from the top down. Um, for me, you know, I, I generally work on, on very large projects and um, whether, whether by design or simply lack of commitment to equality, you know, the room is always dominated by men. Um, there's a cultural, uh, you know, it's cultural issues within organisations and, and I'm talking about, um, you know, national and international companies that employ over 200 people, um, you know, in Sydney. 
um, it, it, it still is a cultural problem, I think. And I think definitely, you know, uh, many women are speaking up. You know, we uh, obviously are very proud of Grace Tame. Go, Grace. Um, but, you know, and uh, there are so many younger women uh, standing up. But really, it's difficult um, when the organizations, large organizations, are so biased towards the main male um, workforce. Because what really happens is that, you know, there is no change unless there's institutional change. Because people, um, you know, look at giving up smoking. The only way people actually gave up smoking was when you weren't allowed to smoke anywhere. You know, it's going to take time and it's going to take measures that are literally that drastic to change uh, the way people feel and, and, you know, what's in people's hearts and minds. There needs to be massive systemic change. And that, unfortunately, is a very, very slow and, and uh, difficult uphill battle. Uh, the good old days, Jane, when smoking wasn't wasn't dangerous. <laughs> I remember those days well. Look, um, let's keep let, let's keep on this on this um, subject because there is something that, that's actually quite well, almost bugging me. I should say. So, women in architecture and construction are outnumbered. Okay, we've established that. Only twelve percent of the of the if we're talking about what, uh, construction, right? Civil engineering, whatnot. Only twelve percent of women account for the workforce in construction, while women remain in junior ranks in architecture, as we said. Uh, despite making over half of the graduates. But do you think that women, if well, if given a choice, really want to be in construction? And I say that, it's a bit demeaning, but I know a lot of blokes who won't go near a construction site. Uh, I'm one of them. I mean, I, I've been, I'll go near a construction site. That's fine. I just don't want to work there. You know what I mean? Um, I've, I've actually worked on a construction site and it sucks. <laughs> And the last thing, I've built my own house and it sucks. Um, the last thing I want to be is on a construction site. Um, how could the construction industry be, become more or civil engineering, I'm, I'm trying to be as broad as I can, be made more, I guess, interesting or appealing to women, if that's the right term to use? Look, I think, Branka, there's a saying that um, women who want to be like men lack ambition. You know, I think that there is a lot of these kind of like percentages um, thrown around. But what is worth understanding is what actually is the construction industry. So, you know, tier one builders deliver 90% of Australia's largest public infrastructure projects. So that is, if we're talking that, you know, the New South Wales government, that's, you know, $108 billion a year. Um, so it's we need to look at how we make these changes and make workspaces and places um, more appealing and accessible to women from the top down. So I'll give you an example, of, and I just pulled this off the internet. I'm sorry, I'm going to make a, I am going to name names, but it was the first one that came up. So if you look at John Holland, so John Holland has a revenue of over $500 million. That's actually the definition for a, for a, um, a tier one builder. Okay. And they have over 5,000 employees. Now, if you scroll, and it was, it's there, I can, you can link it. Scroll to page 32 of their 39-page um, media lease, uh, release. And there's a small uh, paragraph which proudly boasts that they have 51 females on their mentoring program. So 51 out of 5,000 for a company, you know, that's, uh, you know, bringing in, uh, you know, $500 million a year, they've got 1%. So, you know. If, the, if that's, um, you know, and that is the government is actually giving the tier one and the tier two builders 
all of the work. They, they, they only work that they really are the only builders that can comply with the requirements of government. But there is nowhere in the New South Wales government tender schedules or process that actually says to these companies, what are you doing about you know, women in, in your industry? What are you doing about um, having a diverse work workforce? There is no reward and there is no penalty. So really, again, it goes back to who, what, how is change actually made? And, you know, you need to follow the money. You need the, the power is with the money. And that's where I think things need to change. Now, uh, you know, for me, uh, do I think, uh, you know, I, do, I don't think the issue is should a woman be carrying a hod of bricks? Um, you know, it's, uh, I agree with you around, um, you know, the construction industry, um, but, you know, Work health and safety, unfortunately, means that almost anybody can work in the construction industry. One of my friends who's a day trader is bored three days a week and he works on a building site carrying bricks and he's 53. So I'm sure, you know, should a woman wish to do it, she could. But I think that, you know, um, we also have the ability to lead with brains rather than brawn. No, no, I, I, I agree. I just, you know, just my experience working in construction is like, I mean, it's not that I'm, I'm I'm adverse to hard work. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be farming than, than working, you know, in the construction industry in terms of like my own appeal. And I just sort of think about, and I, I have worked a number of times on construction, both inside and outside. Um, you know, whether it be carrying bricks, I've done that, or or you know, installing gyprock, which commercial gyprock, which is about twice the size of a normal residential one, is the heaviest things I've ever carried. So. Yeah, I just look at that and think, yeah, no, I just, no, I just. I, I think we'd certainly have, um, you know, um, better face brick women in the industry. I have to uh, say that. That's one of the things as, a, as a, coming from the UK that I found shocking in Australia, the quality of brick work. So let's talk about environmental aesthetics and also Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as we do on a Friday afternoon. So, Absolutely. <laughs> environmental <laughs> aesthetics are crucial to the way that educators and children, uh, and children feel, think and behave, as you know. So while many educators are familiar with the five elements of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the remaining three need, needs are not known as well. Maslow describes aesthetic needs as those that are met by finding appreciation and beauty within our environments, um, leading to a higher sense of connection to all things beautiful. So in, in terms of what you just said, um, and I actually agree with you there 100%, by the way, but do you think that there is not enough attention given by Australian architects to aesthetic needs? And do you also think that female architects would be better at understanding the importance of this than, let's say, male ones? Look, I think that the quality of the um, built environment, um, which I suppose to answer your question also includes aesthetics, is certainly valued um, by architects. And I think it's certainly something that we are trained to and, you know, good architects inherently um, understand. But, uh, you know, I mean, we know that people work more productively in well-designed office spaces or, you know, even that they get better more quickly in well-designed hospitals. Um, you know, the quality of design is a very, very valuable product. I don't think it's Australian architects um, that don't value aesthetics. I think it really is um, the fact that, you know, again, going back to um, just supporting the profession really is that good quality design 
is valuable. And if we look at schools and school design, you know, if you have, um, you know, that there are statistics around the value of, of education and schooling. And it, it goes across the whole of society. You know, if you have finished school at, at the um, age of 18, you are 30% more likely to live in your own home. You're 30% likely not to die of one of the major diseases like obesity or, or, or diabetes, et cetera. You know, how our communities are actually crafted is really, really valuable. And I think that that is something that, you know, in the long chain, again, you know, we look at infrastructure projects in the long chain of how um, that message gets sent down. It's very difficult for architects to maintain that when we are put in a position where our skills are seen as being, a, you know, a dollar commodity. So it's really not that architects, architects um, don't value aesthetics. I think we are excellent at that. Um, you know, the New South Wales government's number one priority is value for money. But unfortunately, um, you know, when that actually that message is, is really not understood um, when people are actually kind of engaging consultants. Interesting you say that when we talk about governments and money, it's oddly enough, the number one priority of value for money, it never, it never seems to come into consideration when they're um, giving themselves pay rises, does it? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's all over the world, not just in Australia. Okay, so you were once quoted in, in, in my magazine, Architectural Design, that, um, getting back to, getting back to um, education, that architectural sensibilities aim to create childcare environments that make children feel happy, safe, and nurtured while promoting stimulation, wonder, and excitement. Okay, so now we've had two years of the antithesis of that. What does this look like now in the era of COVID or in the era of pandemics, dare I call it? Mm. Well, look, I think that one of the, you know, if there are any, but one of the potentially positive outcomes of COVID are the fact that people are becoming much more um, aware of environmental quality. So for us, we are absolutely um, 100% committed to uh, not being culpable as architects to any more uh, degrading of, uh, you know, the planet. So everything that we do focuses on sustainable outputs. Now, we actually spent a long time trying to educate our clients um, about this. And we work with clients who work with kids, you know, kids who we work with clients who have had uh, families who have been devastated by flood, by bushfire. Uh, we work with schools who have very high, uh, you know, values when it comes to pastoral care and even to, you know, uh, God and Christianity. But nobody wanted to pay or what they thought would have to pay for sustainable design. And that's the unfortunate message that is out there because it is very, very poorly understood, um, both by, I think, um, the industry and by the general public. So really, what does it look like? You know, it's really going back to the basics of looking at how we deliver quality environments. So in education, what's fundamentally important, uh, and, and, you know, it seems so obvious to anybody who sat in the classroom on a Friday afternoon, a little bit like how we are today, Bronco, you know, uh, where you're sat next to a, uh, a, you know, especially 12-year-old, the windows are closed, there's no, um, you know, fresh air, everybody's tired, everybody's cranky, nobody's learning. 
you know so with covid obviously and with you know things that have happened in the in the quarantine hotels people have began to realize that there is um, a huge attention that must be paid to um, the quality of internal environments so we work a lot to design into passive house principles and what that means is it's kind of a win-win really for everybody in that we are able to build buildings that are well insulated um, that have a constant, um, you know, fresh air pumped into them. And when I say constant fresh air, that means filtered fresh air, um, you know, and then they are cooled um, by less mechanical plant because the buildings are built almost like an esky. So, you know, Bronco, when, Bronco, when you take your kids camping and they leave the esky open and your beer goes warm, you know, the idea is that you have that sealed esky. So to keep it cool will take a lot less energy. Um, and it's a great for us because we're now able to push forward, you know, what we've always thought should be fundamental design principles in, in education design to our clients because they can now see it as being reframed as how we actually maintain um, and support mental health and well-being. Now, I think also as well, um, you know, I, I've actually um, been thinking a lot about this and we actually did a, a webinar, Catherine and I, um, a couple of months ago, and we looked at, uh, you know, the future of a school and it was a school that we designed that was looked to support a resilient um, future and, and its local community. So it was a primary school that was already on a secondary school site. And we said, how can we actually make that primary school almost like a safe haven? You know, we're looking at changes in climate. We're looking at crises that we, you know, we may have that we know that we don't know whether it's bushfire, flood, pandemics, or whatever. You know, how can we actually make schools somewhere that can be a safe haven for communities in those times? And in doing that, it's really interesting because applying those kind of fundamental pr principles from first, um, you know, from the first base. Um, it's not only just looking at how you, you know, it's not looking at what you would add on to buildings. You know, we don't believe that, you know, uh, sustainability is really about things that you add on. You know, it's really about thinking about how do you reduce the emissions of actually building a building, you know, um, how do you actually uh, make sure that you employ you know, local tradespeople to actually be on site? How do you make sure that the work that you're doing doesn't pollute the local waterways? Um, you know, how do you actually look at um, using brownfield sites rather than greenfield sites? Like there's a whole big kind of, um, you know, conversation to be had and it does involve multi, uh, you know, almost government departments to come together to look at what the future, I think, of um, certainly the buildings that we design should look like in order to be more resilient in the future. And that involves, you know, the health and well-being. It involves, uh, you know, the resilience of communities and it involves building buildings that are you know are net positive when it comes to carbon not necessarily just carbon zero looking at how we can you know not just be less bad but how can we actually positively you know create better futures for for our children and from for our communities from a global perspective where do you get your inspiration from these designs um or is it the other way around do your designs inspire others and i i've actually asked this question of another firm actually a about two weeks ago, um, and because I, I'm always intrigued as to where the inspiration is coming from. Like you know, you know, it's like chicken and egg almost. You know, where's it coming from first? Because you know, I look at well, you look at magazines. I'm not like seeing or design boom. There's always you know some some funky looking you know Danish school or you know some 
Icelandic tool that looks really cool and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, who's inspiring you here and where do you get your, your um, inspiration from? Look, I think if you were to look at our projects, they're, they're, they're all actually pretty different. Um, we generally get inspiration from the people we work with. Um, we have an extremely diverse a team here at JDH. We have a lot of kind of European and Asian influencers, which is fantastic. Um, you know, my inspiration comes obviously from everywhere and, and everything. We, we're taking a lot of inspiration at the moment from nature. We're looking at naturalness in design and biophilic forms. Um, which is really fascinating and intriguing. But, you know, I'm really um, inspired by the communities that we, um, that communities that see the big picture. So, um, for example, in, I think it was 2015, I went to um, the Malaguchi Centre in Reggio Emilia. Now, I don't know if you know much about Reggio Emilia, but obviously it's one of the kind of foundation stones of, of all contemporary med, um, pedagogies, not just... Montessori, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, Reggio isn't Montessori. Maria Montessori's Montessori, slightly different. But the interesting thing about Reggio was after the end of the Second World War, um, they, uh, the, the village was actually um, given a, offered a significant amount of money from the Italian government. And the men went away and said, what should we do? And they said, well, we should build a factory. And the women went away and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to build schools. And luckily, the, the women won. Um, so the whole of Reggio Emilia since um, the Second World War has actually been dedicated to looking at how the best uh, way is to educate children. And their um, catchphrase, which a lot of you will have heard of, and I'm sure many of your listeners would have been, was um, it's actually um, building as a third teacher. So that, you know, your environment is the, is the third teacher. The child is the first teacher, the teacher is the second teacher, and the environment is the third teacher. So, you know, that's a beautiful, stunning building, but the inspiration really comes from the philosophy that they have there, you know, how much they actually respect um, children and how they, you know, really believe that, that uh, you know, children's journeys in, in learning is, should be self-created by themselves, you know, to allow kids really to play. Um, so I think that that really, it's those kind of, um, you know, those kind of big picture thinking that really inspires me, you know, looking at how people do things differently, um, I think is where I, you know, I actually get my inspiration from. I'm, I'm very uh, entrepreneurial and also I'm a Gemini, so I need lots of different things to feed my curiosity and keep me interested. And, 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 your, and your outlook change, changes on a regular basis, yes. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, on that point, so if Jane Harrison wasn't an architect, what would you be doing instead and why? Oh, well, I, gosh, I actually asked my daughter this question this morning. She said, Mum, you'd be a bank robber. And I think she's okay. probably, yeah, I think she's probably true. I do sort of see myself, you know, a little bit kind of like Danny Ocean type, you know, international kind of criminal mastermind. I would certainly like to be wearing Oscar de Laurento couture and, uh, you know, drinking eat vodka and smoking fags in a dirty alley at five o'clock in the morning. So if anybody has a position vacant, please, uh, yeah, my email will be in the notes. But um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Honestly, you asked me today and I'd give you a different answer, you know, than I would tomorrow. I have always had, uh, you know, a real interest in lots of different things. You know, I have various side hustles. I'm doing something in fashion at the moment with my daughter. Um, I, although, to be honest, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm doing a tiny freebie kind of bit of work um, in a men's hostel. And I think... 
uh, I would love to be able to do something a lot more worthwhile than I do now. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't want to say I want to work with um, children and animals, but I think, you know, certainly as I get a little bit older in life, I'd, I'd like to be able to do something like that. Only because the people who do that are so inspiring. I've got to say, you've, you've broken the mold. Usually, usually I get, um, well, I'd, I'd like to be an artist or I'd like to be a, a carpenter. That's the usual things I get with architects. First time I've been told, oh, I'd like to be a bank robber, yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's each their own. What can I say? No judgment, no judgment from me. Um, Jane Harrison from JDH Architects, thank you very much. It's been a thank pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.